applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. Hi, welcome to another episode of Theology Applied with Right Response Ministries. I'm Pastor Joel, the host of this podcast and show. Uh, today, I'm honored to have Aaron Wren as our guest. Uh, he does a lot of different things, um, but one of the things that he's uh, known for the most currently is he's the author and contributor for uh, the Masculinist a newsletter that also is kind of varying out uh, to becoming a podcast. And so I've listened to some of the episodes in the podcast. I also saw him on Man Rampant with Doug Wilson, and uh, he has a lot of great insight. So I'm excited for him to be a guest on the show today. And so the title of our show today is this, Joe Biden's Fake Unity. Joe Biden's Fake Unity. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about uh, how Christians should be thinking about politics and uh, the theological implications for life, uh, for believers, followers of Jesus here in America today. So without further ado, Aaron Red, will you introduce yourself to our guest? Well, thanks for having me on. As, uh, as you said, I'm the publisher of The Masculinist, which started out as a monthly uh, newsletter about men in the church. I was really uh, struck by the fact that while men have traditionally avoided the church, that the church skews female, that a lot of these secular figures like Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan, and on down the line to, you know, pickup artists or even the incel community, there's all these online communities of men, all these men's gurus out there that are drawing hordes of men to them. And I'm like, why is the church not doing that? And so um, I, I really felt we needed to get in the game because I thought there were some things we weren't exactly getting right uh, on that. So it started off as a newsletter. That's still the core of what I do. Uh, but I've been expanding. Again, there's a website now, uh, themasculinist.com. So there's blogging there. There's podcasts. Uh, I'm even doing like live video interviews now, sort of like we're doing a video interview at, at the moment. Uh, so there's a lot going on as I'm trying to build out the platform. Originally, it was sort of an underground, kind of like a little bit of an underground movement, uh, because prior to starting in on this full time, uh, kind of late last year, uh, I'd been spending most of my career working on urban policy. So I was uh, a writer and researcher about cities and spent several years uh, working at the Manhattan Institute in New York, which is a you know, conservative think tank there. Uh, and then before that, spent a long time in, in corporate consulting. So I've lived in, in Manhattan, but also grew up in a small town of about 50 people. So I grew up on a, a country road in rural southern Indiana. So I've, I've had quite an experience there. But uh, right now, my focus is on reaching men and helping men and the church to succeed and thrive in a 21st century that's increasingly hostile and certainly very different than what most of us have ever experienced before. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges there. I, I Real quick, you, you mentioned for 15 years you were a consultant with urban policy and just kind of a, an, an expert on cities. And I remember there was one podcast uh, on the, uh, one of your episodes on The Masculinist that I listened to that was, um, it was just kind of a confirmation. It was encouraging to me because uh, as, as you know, um, me and my team, we just recently moved from San Diego, and a church that I planted. I handed that over and we moved to the north side of Austin, Texas. Um, I, I wanted to get out of crazy California. And, and I always have to always have to clarify this because, you know, people <laughs> will be in the comment section. And they'll be like, does he know what Austin is? 
right? He wanted to <laughs> leave California, but, you know, but we're, we're in Williamson County. So not Travis County is where Austin is. And so we're uh, just enough away from Austin to where hopefully our police don't get defunded, but close enough to Austin to where there's opportunity and for ministry and for evangelism, um, but also where we're close enough to the tech and the culture and the developments. Um, and we want to be able to benefit from that. We also want to be able to influence and shape that. Uh, but I remember listening to that episode uh, where you were talking about cities, and it just made me think about San Diego. San Diego was rated, I, I think it was back in 2015, but there was a study that was done. It said it was the number one worst city in America to build wealth um, in terms of, obviously, there, there are not many, but a few cities with a higher cost of living like San Francisco, Washington, D.C., uh, but San Diego top the charts in terms of uh, cost of living versus uh, versus jobs and and income uh, being so low. And so it was the hardest city in America to build wealth and being there for 11 years and pastoring the church, the turnover was immense. And I remember you talking about just those transient communities uh, yep. that are constantly turning over. And so it was very difficult to have long-term um, friendship. There was a, a core that stayed for that whole 11 years, but but really... The, the church, you know, it, I mean, we grew up to about 180 adult members, starting with, with nothing, um, but the verdict was really still out. I remember being encouraged and thinking, man, we're really doing it. Um, but, but then as I started to see a little bit more clearly, I realized that um, part of the reason we were doing it is because we were a bunch of young singles. And, and then, right. you know, towards the end, we were married, and, and then everyone was starting to have their first and second kid. Um, but but we never really got to that stage, uh, just that demographic as a church of having, you know, three, four kids and and now in our, our 40s and kids are starting to go to school and and, and are we going to send them to public school or how, how are we going to, you know, so you're going to have to function on one income because mom's homeschooling or you're going to have to pay an additional price for private education. And we, you know, the church is just now, everybody who we left behind who took over the church, they're just now kind of getting to that demographic. And I'm curious to see how many people actually are able to stay long-term. So that was part of it. We wanted to get out of crazy California, but we also just, my wife and I and our friends uh, who came with us, we, we wanted to be able to be in a place where we could, um, well, where we could have friendships for 20 years instead of two to four. And I remember listening to, to what you were saying on that episode, and it felt like kind of a confirmation that I did the right thing. And yet at the same time, urban areas and cities need churches. What can, can you speak to right. that a little bit? Yeah, well, I did an entire uh, podcast series I called Urban World, Urban Church that married kind of my urban, the urban side of my research with my experience in kind of that, that church world. And you're very right that especially the big global cities like in New York or a lot of the California cities, there are high transient populations there. So they're really, you know, not healthy places to live in a lot of ways. I mean, they may be good if you are young and single for a certain stage of your life, but the reality is most people are going to essentially age out of those places. Right. And if you don't, if you stick around too long, uh, you could really end up doing some damage to your life. There's a ton of people in these churches in New York um, who are, you know, now in their 30s and 40s and single and no prospect of of right. finding a husband or, or a wife. And uh, there's a lot of people who are very unhappy and a lot of pain there. Uh, so you can end up really doing damage to your life. You know, there, there's a whole genre of, uh, uh, you know, leaving New York essays that people wrote in the, uh, 
the granddaddy of them all was Joan Didion's Goodbye to All That, which she wrote in the 60s when she was leaving New York for LA. And she talks about that. It's like, it's like you can go in, and one of her lines is, it's like going in a revolving door and coming out eight years older on the other side and not even knowing what's happening. Right. And so right. Uh, that's, that's true, I think, in a lot of these bigger cities. Now, I live in Indianapolis, which, you know, there's you know, 900,000 or so people in Indianapolis. And it's a bit different, though. It's mostly people who are pretty rooted here. And you can have those kind of uh, long-term relationships. But yeah, you look at these churches, these big global city churches, I think one of the things that characterizes them is a very high churn population. And the people who stay long-term are often people who are very wealthy or very affluent. And so if you're not in that category, chances are you're not going to be hanging out with them, right? You tend to hang out with people who are sort of more in your kind of you know, socioeconomic level. It's not that these are bad people, but you're not going to be, you know, going skiing in Vail with them every weekend. You're not going to all the same fundraisers with them. And, you know, they've only got, they're super busy people. They've only got so many cycles in the day and, you know, they can only spend so much time on kind of, you know, younger, less high wattage people. So I think it becomes very difficult to sustain long-term relationships in in Mm -hmm. the city, in these places. And again, you have churches it's sort of like the consulting business. I don't really like the consulting business in the sense that, you know, you sign a project and you do it and then you have no revenue. Again, you have to sign a new project. So part of the challenge of a consulting business is not only do you have to grow your business, but you have to be replacing your business every single year, every single year, you essentially have to resell your whole book of business in a sense. It's like that for some of these big churches. Like if you go to Tim Keller's Redeemer, New York city church, I bet there's a very high percentage turnover there every year. So just mm-hmm. to keep the church from shrinking, they have to right. be bringing a bunch of new people in the door. A ton, now, of people. A ton of people. Now, of course, there are always new people moving into the city, and a lot of them are are already Christian now, which, you know, that wasn't true, say, 30 years ago. You know, there's a lot of young, kind of hip, urban Christian types who want to live in a city. They come there out of college. So there is a sort of a natural inflow to draw from as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of one of the things I would say is that's kind of the dirty little secret of most of these churches now is that they are essentially attracting people who are already Christians. They're not as many people uh, who are are becoming converted to Christianity as there may have been, say, in the 1990s. Uh, when mm-hmm. some of these places were getting started. So it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's a place for people who are already Christian who moved to the big city, which I don't think is bad necessarily. But, right. you know, I think you can, you can, you know, maybe have some, you know, wrong ideas about how these churches function based on the place that you're from, because you probably right. have you know, longer, longer term relationships, more rooted populations, um, you know, et cetera, maybe more evangelistic outreach. That's just less the case in a lot of these cities. That's not all these churches, but that's a lot of them. I completely agree. And I think part of it depends on uh, your, your local church and its theology, as well as its, um, as well as its ministry philosophy. And so I think for me, you know, for the 11 years that I was there, um, I think I just was continuing to, you know, um, semper reformanda, you know, reformed and always reforming and continuing to grow in my doctrine and learning how to apply uh, my theology uh, in all of life, but also on the Lord's day uh, when the saints gather together. And so with this evolution in, in theology and ministry philosophy, uh, what I noticed was 
that the church, as it was becoming more theologically conservative, and as we were even on, on Sunday morning when we would gather together, as I was becoming more, um, more persuaded of a regulative principle of worship rather than a normative principle of worship, and so uh, more, more traditional um, practices on Sunday morning that were just kind of less, less attractive to the, to the average person. Um, you know, so Sunday morning became a little bit more traditional, a little bit more conservative, uh, both in the content, um, both, uh, I think John Owen would say the matter and the manner, right? The matter of our worship in terms of the doctrine, the tenets, the content, but also the manner, the method and how we would do worship and, and a little bit more of a liturgical style, more pastoral prayers, a prayer of confession and a declaration of pardon and maybe, a, you know, a, a creed that we would recite together. And, and so as, as a church, I would just say, as the church kind of grew up, it became a little bit less attractional. And one of the challenges was exactly what you're saying, because there's, there's such a, there's such a, 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 a large back door. Uh, if that front door is not at least the same size as the back door, um, then, then you're constantly shrinking. And it's not sustainable. And so we had a massive front door in the beginning because, um, because the, you know, the service was just, you know, the, the way that we did things are, it, it was just palatable, more palatable. Our doctrine wasn't super offensive. It wasn't, you know, it didn't really surprise people. But as we came into more convictions, now COVID kind of helped us because everybody became family integrated um, in their convictions because, you know, because you couldn't do childcare and things like that. But, um, but, but as, as that began, you know, as that changes and, and you know, people want children's uh, programs on Sunday and, and I'm a little bit more persuaded of, you know, I'm okay with a nursery perhaps or things like that, but I, I want children to go to church. Like if you ask me, you know, to just say in one sentence, what's your conviction for children on Sunday? My conviction is that children should go to church. And when we send them to another room where the Lord's Supper is not administered, where they're not hearing the preached word from their pastor, where they're not sitting with their parents in worship, um, then they're not going to church. Where, where the parents are going to church and dropping their kids off at a Christian childcare center on the way and then picking them up after. And so for me, I'm convicted that children should go to church and that they're a, a child. Part of the reason I think kids fall away from the faith when they go to college is because you know if they're a part of a big mega church that's had a sunday morning it's wednesday night or something like that it's totally different but um supplemental i think is great but but when it's a substitute for sunday morning and, and some things it goes all the way up through high school so you're talking about an 18 year old who for me convictionally has never been to church they're now mm. 18 years old they're a legal adult and then we send them to college and and they're trying to find out how to go to church for the first time in their life and we wonder why they're not doing so well. So, any, but things like that. Uh, my point is, uh, in a smaller town, or even like you said, there are some large towns that aren't quite as transient, like Houston, Texas, right? Because the cost of living is lower. There's lots of jobs, and so even though it's a large city, um, there's still more long-term residents. But but in a place with that high churn rate, that high turnover, um, part of what I realize is I've only got if if the city is an average lifespan of its citizens like three to four years then I really only have three to four years to disciple people into the, 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 the matter and the manner, the content and the method of, of our church. And I realized that as I was growing in my convictions, um, three to four years just wasn't enough time to, like if somebody showed up to San Diego, San Diego and was looking for a church and the person even is already a Christian, uh, because we're getting plenty of people who are already followers of Jesus, but still uh, they, would, they would visit our church on a Sunday 
and and there's it's like if there's one thing that's new to them that that maybe is a little bit of a turnoff maybe maybe they can get over that but if there's three or four things that they're like i've never i've never seen this before there's no childcare and and the pastor really you know he preaches pretty intensely his philosophy of the pulpit you know and uh, if if there's a couple things like that and then you know but maybe i could win them over over time um, but i've only got 3 or 4 years to do it so i realized i kind of had a, a choice to make if I, if i wanted to keep to my convictions i just realized i was going to need more time so like doug wilson controversial figure we had him as a guest recently i i'm a big fan of doug wilson but a lot of people don't like him but one thing that you have to admit that he's done well is i mean he's taken over a town a small town albeit but i mean he is he's taken over that town for jesus and i think part of the success is that he's had 20 30 40 years with with the residents of moscow idaho to to try to win them over and to disciple them into the convictions of Christ church, the church that he pastors there. But if you're in that high turnover place, you, you kind of almost by, by default, it's like you're forced to have less convictions or at least less visible uh, convictions that might turn people off uh, in order to keep that front door large enough to, to, to keep up with the back door. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there's probably something to that. I mean, I haven't had as much experience with what you're talking about, but I think you're absolutely right. When there is only, when you only have someone for a limited number of time, you know, limited period of time, then, you know, you can't be thinking about, oh, I'm going someplace over the next five, 10 years or or that kind of maturity path. It's like, what's the impact I'm going to make in their life right now? I think it does become, you know, a much more challenging situation in a lot of these churches for people. Yeah. Uh, So real quick, you mentioned, um, well, you mentioned just as far as, you know, biblical masculinity, as you were, as you were introing yourself and saying, I do this and I've I've done that. And I kind of picked up on the the whole urban policy in cities. Um, But, but then you also talked about, you know, men and what it's like to be a man in America in 2021. And so I wanted to pick your brain on that for a moment. Um, one of the thoughts that I've had, and I, and I think I heard you speak about this on your podcast, or maybe it was Man Rampant with Doug Wilson. I know you were a guest on, on that show. Um, but one of the difficulties is it seems like with the rise of feminism and, and women in the workplace and, you know, all in the name of equality, um, it seems as though a lot of employers have realized that they could pay people um, half of the salary that they used to. Like, like the idea, you know what I mean? Like, cause what, you know, why, why is it, you know, uh, your wife working? And so the idea that like, you know, you, you, you're applying for a job as a man. It's like, I, I, I want, you know, we want to have a big family. We want to have multiple kids. We want to homeschool or something like that. And, um, and so mom's going to stay home. We can't do two incomes. We, you know, uh, we, we need to, our family needs to be provided for off of one income. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of businesses in a, in a lot of places that think in terms of, of a fair wage for this job is, is going to be, you know, a, a one income household. It just seems like, it seems like because of the rise of feminism and the fact that it's been normalized, that, that both men and women should both be in the workplace working. It seems like wages in some sense, when you think of wages, as it relates to cost of living, that they've kind of gone down. And, and so there's a lot of men that, that I've spoken with, young men who they feel they seem exasperated i think of you know like jesus says fathers do not exasperate your children or fathers don't provoke your sons to wrath and i think there's a lot of men who they're just they're exasperated they feel angry 
And I think part of it is because, you know, they look at their parents' generation and they look at what their dad was able to do and providing for their family and mom was able to stay at home. And it feels as though it is just objectively more difficult. Is that, is that me as a young guy just making excuses? Or, or would you say that from, from, you know, the last 30 years or so, if we think of like the 1990s or, or even 80s, and then we look at 2021, would you, would you say that, that, it's, that men are just more lazy and apathetic? I know there are problems with men. There's sin that we need to repent of. But, but, but would you say that maybe circumstantially it actually is a more difficult world for a man to be this, the single income breadwinner for a, for a home today? Oh, sure. It's undoubtedly the case. I mean, uh, you know, we have essentially a two-tier economy today, whereas if you're part of the knowledge economy class of, say, the top 20% most educated, highly compensated workers, you're probably doing okay. Uh, you're maybe even doing great. Uh, but if you're someone who, say, doesn't have a college degree, uh, which is, you know, over, well over half the population, I mean, like, you know, two-thirds of the population, and that's not just that's not just because we have a lot of old people who didn't go to college. You know, even younger people, you know, fewer than half the fewer than half of millennials are going to college, getting a degree. Mm. Then you're in a situation where you're in a much more, uh, you know, income constrained environment because a lot of those old, well paid, um, kind of blue collar jobs, let's say old union jobs in uh, the Ford plant, you know, those jobs don't exist anymore. They they may exist for the people who still have them because they got them a long time ago. But even if you got a job at the Ford plant today, you're on a two-tier wage scale where younger workers are getting paid much, much, much less uh, mm. than the previous workers did. A lot of the benefits mm. like pensions are not there uh, like they used mm. to be. So yeah, right. so since the 70s, essentially incomes, you know, real incomes, that is to say adjusted for inflation in the country have kind of stagnated. Uh, there's you know a lot of things started going wrong in 1970, and there's a lot of debates about why that may that may be, uh, but definitely the idea that companies uh, you know no longer have this idea of a family wage, you know might be one of them. Um, you know even the unions wanted to to bargain for a family wage so that you could support a family on one income, and now the unions are weaker, and we have corporations that are essentially committed to driving down labor costs. Um, you know, you should, you know, in a lot of ways, you could consider yourself fortunate if you have a job that pays low wages rather than your job having been shipped off to, you know, India, right. Mexico, China, uh, someplace like that. You know, I worked in the IT consulting industry, you know, and uh, the company I went for, I worked for, went from like less than a thousand employees in India in 2000 to now I think they have over 200,000 employees in India. And wow. so you start looking. You start looking at that, you know, uh, you know, certainly, the, you know, corporations today have, you know, since the 80s, probably have become much more ruthless in driving down costs. And again, it's, a, it's complicated. I don't want to say that it's, it's, you know, it's too facile to say it's feminism's fault. There's a lot of thing going on yeah. there. But uh, it's certainly the case that it's a lot harder to support a family on one income today than it used to be. There's an mm -hmm. outfit called American Compass run by a guy named Oren Cass, a former colleague of mine. And they've published research on this. I'm like, here's what a one income in America will buy today versus what it used to buy uh, back in the day. And, and that has become something that they're trying to resurrect, that sort of analysis. Can you actually support a family on this income? And in many mm -hmm. cases, the answer is just flat out no. On the mm -hmm. other hand, I think you know we can complain about the world, but we also have to live in it. 
And I right. think a lot, I mean, a lot of us uh, in today, we have become a very consumer driven society and we probably do spend way too much money, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, in, in general. I know yeah. I, I spend too much money. I spend a lot less money than I used to. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I have a wife who stays home with our son right now. But if I hadn't made those painful reductions in my yeah. lifestyle and in my spending over the course of close to a decade, I would never yeah. have been able to do that. So we just have to, you know, our parents' generation, when they were raising kids, were not drinking Starbucks lattes. I can tell you that. They weren't drinking microbrew beers. They weren't having, you know, the proverbial avocado toast. We ne hardly yeah. ever went out to eat when I was a kid. You know, when we right. were getting like, you know, my mom got whatever brand of soda was on sale that week. That's what we right. got. And so, you know, it wasn't like, right. you know, I had a great childhood, but it wasn't like, when you think back about it, it's like, man, in the 1970s and 80s, when I was growing up, family mm -hmm. life was much, we, spending in the homes were much more simple, much yeah. more primitive. And I think we have to start thinking about how we take cost out of our lives, because that's the other thing we can do. Yeah. Our incomes are probably not going to go up. That's going to be a, that's a hard thing to adjust. Right. But we can look at taking costs out because I do think we want to create margin, create margin for taking risks for ministry, create margin for, you know, having your wife stay home with the kids, create margin right. for lots of things. And so I think that's that's where I would sort of be looking at it today. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. I think it is. I think you're right. I think it is more difficult. I think it is challenging on the on the income side of things. But you're right. I I, I think back to my childhood and uh yeah, everything was Hill Country Fair from HEB. Uh, Hill Country Fair was the generic brand. I think it's still around. I think my wife, now that we're in Texas, is she's excited about HEB and we're buying Hill Country Fair for our, our kids. And yeah, so, yeah. Our parents were just they were frugal. They were they were more frugal. And they and so, you know they had to be. You know they they had to be. Now again, yeah. that's not to say. I mean, things there were a lot of things that were cheaper back then. There were a lot of things you know right. that, that were different. But I think we have become. We have definitely. There's a lot more. Uh, expensive things to buy today than there were back in the eighties. In the eighties, you had three TV stations, you know, or four right. TV stations. Right. You were drinking Miller butter Coors, you know, mm -hmm. you were drinking Maxwell house or Folgers. Those were your choices. You didn't right. even have a lot of choices to spend a lot of money. Now right. you had a lot of choice. You had a lot of opportunities to spend a lot of money. You're right. All right. So shifting gears here, um, kind of into the political realm. You you said something on on one of the episodes of your podcast, The Masculinist, again that I I, I thought was really really insightful. Um, so I've I've was you know a pastor in the Acts twenty nine network for a little while and been a part of that gospel center, gospel center, everything's gospel center, which I have grown to resent a little bit. Um, I, I I absolutely believe that the gospel is the center. The problem is, I think in a lot of gospel centrality churches. Um, the, the gospel, it's its not gospel centrality, it's gospel myopticism, it's gospel everything. There's only the gospel. Um, whereas for me, if we're saying gospel center, that implies if it's the center, there's something around it. And I would argue that what's around the gospel is the law, that God loves his law just as much as he loves his gospel. And we don't, it's not our obedience to the law that merits salvation. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, but, um, but that the law matters. It reveals to us our sin, our need for a savior, and then for the Christian, upon salvation, upon conversion, um, we delight the law of God. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's that compass that shows us where, where we should go, not to earn God's favor, but this response of gratitude for the free favor we've received uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so um, all that being said, in these gospel-centered, gospel-everything churches, 
and a lot of them being urban city churches. And it's all about, you know, you know, in the city, in the city. And you hear the phrase, you know, from uh, Jeremiah in the city and for the city, right? If the city prospers, you too will prosper. Seek so the welfare of the city. Exactly. In the city, for the city, love your city. Um, but then, but then when you hear guys talk about loving your country, all those kind of churches that are all about being in the city and loving the city, love New York. But, but uh, if you love America, then we're pretty suspicious or, or we're right. just going to outright frown upon that. And it really seems like, like hypocritical, a disconnect. And you, you picked up on that and I thought it was really insightful. <laughs> so could you speak to, could you speak to that, flesh that out and tell us what you meant by that? And, and maybe some of the reasons why you think that's become a thing that not just in the culture, right? We can expect that in the culture, but in churches, it's cool to love your city, but it's not cool to love your country. What, what's up with that? Yeah, you know, that's one of those things. I just noticed it. Actually, my wife was the one that first noticed it. It's like, man, they, they always seem to be telling you to love your country less and, uh, yeah, you know, love love your city more. And right. I thought about that as like this idea of, you know, we're here, we're all about the city. And yet at the same time, kind of nationalism or thinking about your country, like that's considered bad. It's parochial. Don't you know that we're, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's not, there's no distinctions. We're all just one body of Christ and all that. And, Um, you know, you can go to, go to some of these, you know, kind of new Calvinist websites like the gospel coalition and search on nationalism and see what they have to say, you know, try to find them say anything about making an idol out of your city or, you know, identifying too much with your city and, you just really can't find it. And I think this is just, you know, it's never described why, you know, and again, there's like a lot of that. It's like, it's presented, but unless you kind of put two and two together, you don't necessarily think about it. And that's what I've, I have noticed the rhetoric of a lot of these pastors is like that. They tell you things that sound great, like, Oh, seek the welfare of the city, all this stuff. So everything individually sounds correct, but there's a lot of things they're not saying. All right. So there's a lot of things they're not saying. And like when you start putting these things together, you start saying, well, why is the city where the place? Why is the city the locus of identity and not the nation, mm. for example? And I, yeah. I think that's I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think it's very obvious that the the Bible is much friendlier to call them particularized loyalties than um, the, the, the a lot of these churches seem to be. And in fact, right. the one thing I think that the Bible is, does not really advocate is loyalty to your city. I mean, I don't think that's something that necessarily right. comes I'm, through in the Bible, you mm-hmm. know, but um, I think about, for I mean, example, maybe some loyalty to Jerusalem because the yeah. temple is located, you know, like, what yeah. it symbolizes. But apart from that, yeah, it's I, yeah. Right, I mean, it's in at the, a in national the old, level, not a city level. It's Israel. It's yeah, not, it's, you know, it's, it's not, Israel. It's your tribe. Right. You know, and yeah. I think about uh, Paul, I think it's in Romans 9, where he talks about he would be willing to give up his own salvation for the sake of his people, you know, the right. Jewish people. And even though According he was the apostle, to the flesh, right, yeah, it's like, he's yeah. like, man, my heart breaks because my people have rejected the gospel, even though I'm the apostle. Right. To, and so he never made that offer to the whole planet, but he's like, for my people, yeah, you're you right. know, Right. You know, I, I care about that. So, I, you know, I don't think that there's this idea that you can't care about your own people, that you can't care about your own family. Mm-hmm. Um, a, again, is it, is it, is it Titus or, or first Timothy? I can never remember what it says. He who uh, does not provide for his own family has mm-hmm. denied the faith and is worse than right. an unbeliever. Right. Mm-hmm. Do good to all men, but especially to the household of the faith. So this right. idea that we have not just 
you know, universal kind of so one, one universal community, but we have sort of particular communities that we have, um, we have, you know, responsibilities to, I think is very biblical. And mm. I mean, again, oddly, the city is not one of them. And I do right. think, you know, I see this like pretty much everything else in the church today, unfortunately, as a reflection of sort of the cultural kind of prejudices and biases of the people who are, who are promoting it. Because in essence, right, the, the, the elite classes of the city, the knowledge economy classes of the cities view themselves as very, when they view themselves as very, at one level, they view themselves as very cosmopolitan and transcultural. So they see themselves as very much having a lot in common with the similar class of people in London or Buenos Aires or Tokyo or wherever the place may be. They view themselves as very, very cosmopolitan. And, and, and yet at the same time, they view themselves as very, many of them, not all of them, but quite a few of them see themselves as very attached to their cities. You know, I lived in Chicago for a long time and, you know, you would see on people's arms a Chicago flag tattoo. I mean, the Chicago flag mm. is everywhere. People are so into being in Chicago or they'll have like a Chicago right. star. There's like a star style star on their flag here in Indianapolis. And I, I actually helped launch this. I'm, I'm afraid. Uh, well, I'm not afraid. It's, good, it's a great thing. We have a great city flag here. So you go around mm-hmm. the neighborhood where I live. I live in the center, center city of Indianapolis. You will see much more likely to see a city of Indianapolis flag hanging off of a house than an American flag, or certainly yeah. than a state flag. And so you have this situation where the people who live in these places are very cosmopolitan in outlook. Uh, and to the mm-hmm. extent that they have particularized loyalties, it's a loyalty to uh, the city where they live. Right. Often right. in opposition to the state where they live, I'm from Austin. I'm a good blue city progressive Austin resident. Right. I'm not like right. those. I'm not like those people out right. there. And I think this those attitude Texans. has this attitude has been mapped directly onto the church. I mean, that attitude yep. effectively is the whole deprioritize the nation. You know, deprioritize your state. You know, elevate. You know, have this kind of cosmopolitan transnational view you know, of a family of God and have a parochialized attachment to the city, it is directly secular. Um, yep, I, there. And I that's, agree. And I think that's, you know, that's been the downside of contextualization. You know, they always say you have to contextualize mm. your ministry right. to where you are. And I'm a believer in that. I mean, mm. as I say, if you want to go into pizza business, you better know if you're in Chicago or New York, right? Yeah. And so right, right. you got to know what the, what the genres are. I'm a big believer in that, but you can take it too far and essentially go native. Yeah, you know, yep. and um, it's like, you know, I that's agree. the danger of consultants, right? If you have the same client for a long time, you you go native in the client's culture and you lose your detachment and, and, it, and it comes from it. And I, I think a lot of these people have over contextualized yeah. the cities they're in and have taken in a lot of these, a lot of these ideas. And so, yeah, I did a whole, right. again, I did a whole podcast series on my little observations like that about the, uh, mm-hmm. about the urban church. Yeah, it was really insightful. And the contextualization, I completely agree with you. You can over-contextualize where uh, really you're being influenced more by the city than the city's being, you know, shaped and influenced by by the church. And I think, you know, with contextualization, um, the importance, the, the point in my assessment, as I look at just the New Testament, I look at Paul, I look at the book of Acts, and um, it seems as though the, the point of contextualizing is is to make the gospel message more clear not more ambiguous. It's not to make it more palatable. It's to make it, it's, it's not to raise uh, acceptability. It's to raise clarity. 
Um, and so it seems like what the Apostle Paul is often doing, you know, where he at Athens, you know, I, I see that you're a very religious people. You've got, you know, this idol and this idol and this God and this God. And I see there's one, you know, to the, the unknown God. And I've, I'm here to make him known. Um, and, and he's playing off of that. But it's, it's not for palatability. It's not, it's not an intra- attractional method um, so much as it's, it's a point of clarity. And so I think when you come into a city or you come into any new people group, if it's, you know, shame and honor based, you know, and, and knowing that about the culture and being able to, to play off of, of those shame and honor themes in the scripture and in the gospel. But the point of that is, is not so that they'll like you necessarily. The point of that is to be able, it, it, again, it's clarity. It's so that they would understand the word of God, uh, because you're walking into a culture that already has virtues, and it already has vices. It already has things that, that, that are deemed as good and things that are deemed as bad. And because we're all sinners, every single culture is going to be, ha, ha, be right about some of those things. And they're going to be wrong about some of those things. And, and wherever they're right, then yeah, that's common ground, right? Because of God's common grace, there could be a culture of, of people who, plenty of people who are not Christian, and yet, and yet they still, there's something in the culture that they value that God values, uh, simply because they're image bearers of the living God made in his image, and they got something right. And we can, and we can highlight that. But the point of highlighting that is, Again, it's, it's not just to find common grounds that they'll like us, but I, I think the, the point is to, to start with something that, that they understand so that, we can, so that we can gain understanding, so that we can gain clarity. And I think, I think a lot of young hipster pastors have, have used contextualization as, as a means of gaining the approval of the people that they're ministering to, rather than a means of, of gaining clarity with the gospel message so that the people they're ministering to uh, will, will better understand. And, and so I, I see the Apostle Paul contextualizing for the, por- for the purpose of clarity, not for the purpose of, of the approval of man. What, what do you think yeah, about I mean, that? I think that's interesting. You know, people love to quote that uh, Mars Hill uh, speech, uh, from from Paul in Athens, uh, but you know I think it's interesting that Paul's Athens mission appears to have been a failure. I mean, right. in contrast to many like other places, he didn't. Few. We don't hear that he made a lot of converts or that he established a church there. Converts. It would seem to be that he went into the intellectual centers. He kind of tried this approach, and it actually didn't work. So that right. might be you, you might want to pick right. a more successful um, a more successful right. uh, one there. Yeah, I, I do think there's, uh, but I do think it's, I like this idea of, of giving more clarity, you know, more clarity to the gospel, but, uh, you know, not trying to overly synchronize, you know, overly synchronize mm-hmm. with the culture. Because yep. I, I think without um, question, without question, the urban culture had more impact on the church than the church had on urban culture. I mean, that's just absolutely. unquestionable. And you're not talking about Paul you're, at, at this point. You're talking no, I'm talking about, about today. I'm talking about yeah. today. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, but again, I, I, I don't know. I I don't know how much. Uh, now, I don't know how much impact Paul had on the urban culture. I mean, uh, and this is where you know I think we maybe don't want to get us off track here. But Paul, like, does not. I don't. I don't see Paul as transform a culture transformation mission as part of Paul's mission. It doesn't come through to me in reading Paul. Uh, I think he's very concerned about two things. One is making converts, transferring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. And secondly, how establishing and the community life, talking about the community life within the church. So much of what he talks about within the church, very few of his commands were deal with the world outside the church. 
uh, right. that he seemed he seemed so, to like you know it's like in Corinth it's like they're like this you don't be like this here's how right. you're going to behave but isn't like right. okay you got to go out and like change the sexual practices of Corinth you know right. so I I'm right. I'm not I would say think, this is where I differ from the the Kellers and the Wilsons I'm not a transformationalist uh-huh. okay so see and I and and I am I I would be <laughs> Kuyperian and so I would push back then I would say I think you're right but I think you know you're describing. Uh, motive or or goals of Paul, you know, I mean, and both of us, of course, are ultimately assuming, um, and you're saying, man, it seems like the goal was, you know, it was converts, it was disciples, and it was the church. And, and whereas I would look at that, and I would say, yeah, that, that I think is absolutely a, a goal that was in the mind of Paul. Um, but I would also see that as, as, it's not just the goal, it's not just the end, but it is the means, because if you make enough converts, and you make enough disciples and the church gets large enough, then, then just by default, the culture does begin to change. So I think of um, an example would be uh, Paul and his ministry. I, I believe it was Ephesus uh, where everybody is getting together. They want to arrest Paul and get rid of him because um, he's had so much success. And I, I believe e- Ephesus is where for, for three years. Temple of Artemis. Uh, yeah. The, the hall of Tyrrhenius. Uh, that yeah. he's he's you know he, he's got hit this block and it seems like it was just like this hall that was used for thinkers and philosophers and he he gets the um the you know the cheapest it seems like he gets the cheapest time slot um where it's the, the hottest inside you know but for it's most most biblical scholars and historians would say it was like a three-hour slot from noon uh to 3 p.m in the hall Tyrrhenius, and i think he's there for either a year and a half or three years and he's teaching uh just publicly teaching in the public square, if you will, it's not a synagogue, you know, it's not a church. And he's doing that for a very long time. And eventually, the result is um, that, that even like the blacksmiths and, and silversmiths and, and people are getting together, and they say, you know, we're in danger of, of, uh, you know, um, of Artemis, you know, uh, and, and uh, the, the, the great God losing her, you know, her reputation and our very trade is is being threatened by extinction because and so basically my point is paul's message was so effective that uh people were buying significantly less idols to the point where the merchants you know um and the people who that was their trade was working with silver and gold and different you know precious metals to make idols they they were losing their jobs and losing their livelihood because because the city the culture uh seemed like it was beginning to shift beginning to change and they were it was, he was so successful that they were upset about it, upset about it enough to, whereas I feel like if it's just the church, if it's just what we do in the church, then, um, well, well I mean, I say, I think you're, but, if, if you if you convert the whole, if you convert the whole town, then obviously that's going to have an impact right. on it. But yeah, I yeah. just think, you know, it's an outworking, it's an outworking yeah. of, I agree. you know, the process of that. It's not, you know, we're coming in here to trans, we're coming in here to transform the culture. No, you're right. Yeah, I think that, if, okay. I think that's yeah. Right. I mean, that's where that's where I kind of feel like it's like we're going in here. We're on a mission for culture transformation. Right, and, and uh, we, you yeah. know, I just and think I would agree that, and, and and certainly in today's world, it just hasn't worked in these urban areas. Their culture has not been transformed. The culture of the church is what's right. been transformed. Right, and that's I completely agree with that. And it's frustrating, to, you know, to continue to hear people in the church talk about, you know, where you know where going against the grain we're countercultural countercultural and and they say we're countercultural as, as they hold their next big conference that that solely focuses on whatever the culture was talking about f- 5 to 10 years before they started right. talking about it you right. know like when 
when when I see a church conference and and the title of the conference and the whole theme of the conference is is verbatim the same thing that I find on on my Amazon Fire Stick on the <laughs> you know when I when I, looking at the screen you know about Black Lives Mattering or or stopping injustice you know or um, I, then I just I'm struggling to understand how are you countercultural and if this was such a big deal if this is such a big deal and there's inequality and injustice then 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 why wasn't the church talking about it before it was cool? Why, right. why wasn't, you know what I mean? Because, because I, I mean, for, I, I think we have to stop kidding ourselves. I think we just have to call a spade a spade and just admit that like the, the church is not countercultural. Uh, that sadly, the church is continually in, in my experience, it seems as though the church is about five years behind the culture and all the church does. that's distinct from the culture is if the culture hops on to, you know, uh, if the culture labels anything as a virtue that's that's blatantly not a virtue according to scripture, then the church just sits that play out. But mm-hmm. anything that the culture deems as virtuous, that the Bible could even get close to affirming as virtuous, the church hops on that about five years after the culture has already begun to work. Right. And to say that that's leading culture or shaping culture, I think it. I I don't know. I, I think we need to repent and, and admit that we're just. We're right. not doing so hot. Yeah, so, I mean, you okay. never see these. You never see these churches speak prophetically about, uh, you know, about mm-hmm. the sins of the city that they're in. You know, greed on Wall and if Street they were, or something like that. If they were speaking prophetically, they they would probably get a lot more pushback because, I mean, even Jesus said, "Was there ever a prophet that your forefathers did not kill?" Prophets right. seemed, you know, typically one of, one of the clear, you know, telltale signs of a prophet is is that they're persecuted because they're a leader. There, you, you could say it like that. I mean, a prophet, obviously, in Old Testament times was, they're not, you know, I was going to say a thought leader, well, thought leader, thought leader. And, um, well, a prophet in Old Testament times, they weren't a thought leader so much. It was God's thoughts, and they were simply speaking for God. But but in New Testament times, I mean, a prophet is somebody who, you know, I, I think a prophet is somebody who just simply has an open Bible and common sense. And I think um, a a you know, like Frodo Baggins, he had a, you know, he had a um, unusual resilience to the power of the ring. I think a prophet in today's times has an unusual resilience to the power of the approval of man. Mm. They, 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 they seem to not care so much about what people think. So they just have an open Bible. They have some common sense and they don't really care what people think. And there's, there's your new Testament, you know, prophet, if you will. And, and for those individuals, they're the actual thought leaders. They're the people who are saying things when it's not okay to say it, you know, before it becomes mainstream, before it becomes accepted, prophets tend to be ridiculed. Prophets are, are rarely praised or applauded. And, and so I think whenever the church is being applauded, um, nine times out of 10, it's probably because the church is not being prophetic. Um, if the church was being prophetic, I think then the church would be more ridiculed. The church would be less light. And so... Um, anyways, that being said, what, what is the difference? Because um, with the, going back to love your country, you know, and not just your city, uh, what's the difference between nationalism and patriotism? Uh, because I think that's one of the, the hangups, because I've seen Gospel Coalition write, you know, some articles about nationalism and, and how that's wrong. Um, but, but what is the actual distinction between nationalism and patriotism? And, and why, do you think, why do you think Christians in this nation, you know, are trending away from being patriotic? And why is that? Why is that? keep getting wrapped up into nationalism 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't have precise definitions of any of these terms, and neither does anyone else. It's just like, right. you know, nationalism is like a negative identifier today, and patriotism, mm -hmm. I guess, for some is a positive identifier, although other people don't like patriotism either. So, uh, you know, the, the only thing I can say is like, you know, to them, like nationalism is just a bad, it's just a bad thing. Calling someone a nationalist is just like calling them, you know, a xenophobe or anything else. It's just a, it's just a general purpose epithet of negativity that they apply to something. And Selim, one of the things you find, you rarely find really crisp definitions of what these people are talking about. Uh, you know, if you're going to, if you are, you know, if you are going to critique nationalism, then I think you should define, you know, what, what you mean by that, if you're going to critique it, you know. Right. Uh, so I, you know, I don't even spend time thinking about that stuff because I think getting down in the weeds of content on those mm -hmm. sorts of things is, um, you, you know, uh, just a little bit, uh, you know, it, it's just not, you're never going to convince these people by coming up with a better definition. No, you, if you just right. understood the proper definition of nationalism or patriotism, right. you would think differently. I mean, it's what they're saying, it's pure rhetoric. And that's just what I think. One of the most important things I would just tell people is everything these people say is pure rhetoric. The content is almost incidental to mm -hmm. its rhetorical function. And you can't, you can't, yeah. engage, if you're trying to engage in a substantive debate, one of my rules with them is if you're engaging in substance, you've already lost. If you're trying to get into some kind of a, you know, a logical, you know, dialectical, you know, debate with people, you're going to get crushed because that's not the level at which they're operating. Right. You know, right. you can do, you, you can do that. Yeah. Uh, certainly not. If you're in a position of uh, call it cultural supremacy, if you're in the, if you're in the incumbent position, then you can maybe, and you know, maybe you can do things a little differently, but yeah. you know, if you're sort of in the challenger position, uh, then, you know, it, you know, talking about talking about facts is kind of a waste of time. I hate to say it. Not right. that facts aren't important. Yeah. It's important to have it right, but you're never going to convince other people through a superior, you know, logical argument about facts. Which is sad, but um, okay. Well, then let me phrase the question like this: So, terms aside and definitions aside, nationalism, patriotism. Um, what? Let me ask this: uh, What what level of love for one's country is too far? At what point, you know, for the Christian speaking from a, a Christian worldview, uh, at what point would it become actually idolatrous or sin, or what? What what is too much love for one's country? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I really, you know, I haven't thought about, I think, I think it's less about love of one's own than it becomes hate for other people. I mean, I think we, we okay. certainly, if we cross the boundary line into hatred for other people, then that's sinful because that, that is a sin. Um, you know, I think when you become, you know, when it becomes, you know, a, a sort of, you know, ethno superiority uh, right. to, to, to an extent, I think there's a, I think there's a, a you know kind of a health a, a kind of healthy view of superiority. Like you always love your own kids and think your own kids are better than other people's kids, right? right. And uh -huh. that's normal and natural. So you could you should mostly I think feel good about the place where you are. Maybe oh our country's mm -hmm. the best, we're the greatest. But like maybe it's like oh we should like rule over people. Other people are terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know you get into that sort of thing. Yep. Um, you know yep. I, think I think I think we helpful. have to start. I do think we have to start with the recognition that there are very few, you know, kind of culture-free individuals, right? That we were all born into a, a community of flesh and blood people, you know, with, you know, sort of shared history, shared traditions, you know, shared language, shared culture, 
And it is not wrong to identify yourself with that any more than it is wrong to identify yourself with the family that you were born into. And it doesn't mean, you know, uh, you know, you know, my country right or wrong or something like that. Because I think right. we could recognize, I, I look at the analogy to the family, we can recognize that people in our family are sinful, that maybe they've done wrong to us or others. And yet that doesn't stop us from still being in a, in a family relationship with them. Right. You know, Committed, that we, you know, and, and I think this is one of the things that people, they try to undermine, they try to undermine your love of country by essentially pointing out its flaws. Well, don't you know that these people did this? Don't you know this person here was bad, did these bad things? I'm like, so what? I mean, ultimately this idea, like if the standard for caring about someone or something or having identity to them is that they were perfect and didn't have any sins and didn't do bad things, you know, we're not going to have anybody on there. So I think they're always trying to like, you know, and and I think, you know, the reality is sort of the, the, uh, you know, uh, call them, you know, very patriotic. This is probably an example of bad patriotism, you know, and it's, and it's really, it's like the, the eighties Christianity I grew up in, you know, this America is the new Israel and like we're God's chosen vessel. And like America is this perfect nation. It's like, I, so I do think we've overly, we've overly lionized America as this, Mm -hmm. you know, perfect, unique, exceptional country. Whereas I think we can acknowledge the idea that like somehow acknowledging the flaws in America, acknowledging what's went wrong, somehow mm-hmm. would keep you from not feeling an American, identifying with America and being America. Well, I don't, I don't think that's so any more than our, you know, defects in our family necessarily keep us from loving them or being in relationship. Right. We just realize that's, that's our family. That's who we are. Right. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that we can be, we, we should be honest about the failures of the country, but that doesn't mean that we should say, oh, we're so horrible, you know, right. just, you know, and again, right. these things are never, these things are honest. never applied. These things are never applied, you know, evenly across the board, right? It's only applied to the United States. It's only applied to like white people. Exactly. It's only applied exactly. to, and it's like, it, it's, right. I mean, it's a joke. Yep. It, it really is. Woke is a joke. <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's, let's go ahead and just round out the episode. So this is the final question. This gets to the title that I said all the way at the beginning. I apologize to the listeners who are like, hey, I clicked on this video to get to uh, the Joe Biden unity thing. So here we go. President Joe Biden, he continues to call for unity. The nation needs to be united. Let's all come together. Let's all just get along. You know, now that that device of Donald Trump is out of here, you know, and I'm here, let's just let's bring back, you know, love and everybody love everybody. Um, but it feels disingenuous. It, it doesn't feel like a true unity or what the Bible would define as unity. So I guess the question is, what do you see as some of the distinctions between Biden's unity and God's unity? Uh, well, you know, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I, you know, I, I, God's unity, I don't, I don't know. I, I do think that the New Testament, one of the key themes of the New Testament is unity within the church. And I, I think that there's... Um, you know, I think a lot of the talk about unity in the New Testament is specific to the church community, that there's this new kind of community that has been inaugurated, and the way that we live within that community is to be different than mm-hmm. the way the way that people have, have lived, I, I think, in the world. We see Ephesians, it's right, you know, it's like three chapters right. of, of the gospel, three chapters of how we're supposed to live mm-hmm. in response to that as a community, as as a church. I also think this idea, you know, there is this idea that like Christ is reconciling all things to himself, mm-hmm. which I can't begin to explain. You know, Biden's unity, 
is basically, you know, surrender to me, <laughs> you know, right. and my, right. my way, go, go along with me. And I do think, and this is where I think, um, you know, I do think as Christians, we need to be careful because, you know, I have a very, I think the Bible takes a very high view of authority and, yep. mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, we are called to be into, you know, submission to the authorities, even, you know, you look at like first Peter, it's like, even when they are evil authorities right. in, in many respects. And so, um, you know, I don't think, you know, again, it's, you know, it's a little, you know, it's not like, you know, okay, we have to go along with Biden because he's the president, you know, the Pharisees were the authorities. Jesus didn't go along. He recognized their authority. He said they live at, they sit in Moses' seat, but he didn't mm-hmm. act like they were like these great group of people either. So I think we can, right. we get respect. I do think we have to respect and honor authorities yes. uh, in a right. country, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to, to support, um, support what you know they're doing or all those things right. and A- you know, additionally within our within our culture and our system of government dissent and protests and things like that are certainly valid parts of what it means to mm-hmm. be under the authority of the united states so there's That's right. there's an explicit legalized room for dissent but i you know i do think this you know i, I do think we need to be careful uh you know not to o- overly reject you know overly reject the you know the authorities that are there just because we don't like them so the reality right. is Joe Biden is the president. That's right. Yeah. And so we need to, you know, we need to, you know, honor, honor the king, right? In, in the sense that we're right. called to pay, give taxes to who taxes are due, et cetera. But, you know, I certainly think, you know, Joe Biden, you know, just like all politicians, this call for unity is basically do what I want. And, right. uh, you know, I don't think right. we have and to go along so, with that. Yeah. So let me pick up on that. You said do what I want. You know, and earlier you said, uh, you know, Biden's unity is surrender to me. Surrender yeah, to basically. me. And I, and I thought... And I think that's great because so this is this is kind of, you know, as you were saying that it just got me thinking, but I, I think Biden's unity is in many ways, ironically, I think it is similar to God's unity um, or Christ's unity, because that's Christ's unity, surrender to me. Yeah. And I think you you know, like you said, like the you know, the unity in the church, um, I kept thinking as you were talking, I kept thinking like the reason that we should, and we don't always have it because we're sinners and we fail, but but the reason why there's at least the hope or the opportunity, the potential of unity within the church is because as Christians and followers of Jesus, we are all supposed to be surrendered to Christ and what he thinks, his virtues, his values, his priorities, his commandments. And, and so the reason we even stand a chance at unity, it seems, is because our commander-in-chief within the church, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, um, the, the way that he tries to gain unity, the way that he is gaining, he doesn't just try, but he is gaining unity in his body, his bride, is, um, is by forming more and more by his grace through sanctification, by the power of the spirit, he is forming more and more of himself, his virtues, his values, his righteousness within his body from the head is flowing all the blessings of God to the body of Christ. And we're becoming more like him. And we're, beca- we're we are, increasingly uh, sharing in his virtues, his values, his thoughts, um, thinking God's thoughts after him, you know, and, and I think like Biden wants that unity. It's funny, because I, I just, I haven't thought it, uh, like this before, but just as you were talking, I was thinking, I think Biden's calling for the that same type of unity, think the way I think, um, have the same virtues as I have. I think the problem is, um, from a Christian perspective, I just don't know if we're supposed to have unity. In, in a nation, with, with, with filled with Christians, but also pagans, 
I, I keep thinking of scripturally, like there is no fellowship. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What like so as Christians, I think we can we can have like a unity. I've heard some some people say two types of biblical unity. One is a, a unity of common care, and one is a unity of common conviction. Right. So there's that unity of common conviction that, that we have the same doctrine, the same tenets, the same, you know, that Ephesians 4 talks about that we uh, that the unity of the faith. But then there's also the unity of love, the unity of common care that, you know, that even those people who are less mature and have some wrong views that we bear with those um, who are weaker in the faith and who get under our skin and mistreat us. We're bearing with them. We're long suffering. We're patient. We're loving. And so I think when it comes to the nation, it seems like we can we can aspire to have what you're saying, you know, honor the emperor, honor the king. We can aspire to have that unity of common care, but biblically, we can never have that unity of common conviction. We're never going to agree with abortion. We're never going to agree with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, I would hope that Christians would never agree with socialism. Uh, that's my perspective. You know, I, I would, you know, th- because we would see these as things that are against the 10 commandments. It's murder and it's theft. And just because it's civil theft doesn't mean it's not theft. And so, uh, these kind of things, we, we cannot have unity of common conviction, unity of thought, um, but, but we can still strive to have a unity of common care, a unity of love, um, bearing with one another, being patient, long-suffering, those kinds of things. Would you agree with, with that? Yeah, well, I think if you look at the Bible, right, unity in the church is possible because of two things. One, uh, in theory, everyone in the church has placed their highest allegiance to Christ, so everybody has the same right. uh, the same thing. And secondly, there's the power of the Holy Spirit <laughs> that's at work right. uh, to make right. it possible. And even then, even just in the New Testament, these apostolic planted churches, you know, by people who are, you know, better ministers than you or I will ever be, right. it was a constant struggle. Unity, I mean, a lot of those they letters were written, they still couldn't get it to work. Right. And uh-huh. so I think when you start looking at the the difficulties of unity within the church. And, you know, uh, I think it's almost impossible kind of outside of it. Again, in Biden's unity, I I don't think there's anything particularly nefarious to it. That's what all politicians will say. That's what Trump said when he got elected. And, you know, Biden, his guys, they didn't, they didn't unify around Trump. Yeah. They declared themselves the resistance. And so, uh, you know, it's what every president's going to do. I don't, you know, I don't put too much, uh, you know, I don't put too much stock in, in that sort of pol- those kind of political statements. And you're right, we're not going to have, you know, you're not going to have um, unity. And I think that actually, yeah. you know, shows that the more, you know, that that is, uh, you know, this common convictions and, and sort of things. When you have a more diverse society, unity becomes progressively more difficult to achieve. That's right. And yeah, because so, there's less uh, to unite around. Yeah, you have, le- you just, have less kind yeah. of, you know, you know, less common cause. Uh, but and I use, I use the term diversity in kind of the broadest sense, and that is just, mm-hmm. you know, people of all sorts of different inclinations, ideas, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. it's just going to be very hard to create create unity around those things. Right. You have different religions, you have different <clears throat> cultures, you right. have different, you know, ethnicities, all, all these things in America. And it, the sad thing, the ironic thing is, um, you know, with all those differences, there's there's not a whole lot for us to unite around in terms of commonality. The one thing that we had that we could unite around was love for the country. And now that one got taken away, too. So it's like, what, right. what do you, you know, what, what do I have to unite over with, you know, my Nigerian neighbor? you know, who is American, they live in America, they're an American citizen, but like, culturally, we don't have a whole lot. But but typically, what we would have is they're here for a reason. And, and nine times out of 10, the reason is because 
in some sense, they love America. They, they view this is a wonderful place to be. That's why I moved my family here. And I can say, hey, I love America too. But now you, you can't even say that anymore. So it's, there's just not a lot of, not a lot of items left to unite around. But we, we got to go. We went a little long. I, I apologize to you and to the listeners. But let, let's go ahead and conclude the episode. So this is the bonus question. Um, if you are listening and you're not yet one of our club members, we call them our responders. I encourage you to go ahead and sign up. We have a bonus material from each of our episodes of Theology Applied. We also have uh, we have an entire other podcast called Lionheart. We also have uh, my entire audio series from the Gospel of John. It's about 72 to 75 sermon uh, sermons in the Gospel of John. So there's a lot of material that you can grab uh, by becoming a responder, and uh, it helps to support the ministry. And so this is our bonus question for our responders. Aaron's going to stay on for just a little bit longer, our after hours episode. So the question is this, um, Aaron, you, you had a uh, another one of your episodes, you're, you're like me. Sometimes you just got to shamelessly use that clickbait title to get people to to listen to the material, but you titled it this, and you even confessed, I think, in the episode and admitted, all right, I, you know, I did a little bit of the clickbait thing, but uh, the title was uh, Why the Republican Party Hates Your Guts. And uh, and so I just wanted to hear, you know, a little bit, what 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 is your assessment of the Republican Party today? And what's your prediction? For, for what the Republican Party is going to be in the next five years. And, and more generally, what do you think the future of conservatism is in our nation? So that's our question. Let's go ahead and close out uh, the episode. Aaron, could you let our listeners know how they could uh, keep up with you, be praying for you and follow you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just go to themasculinist.com. Everything will be there. Uh, the thing I would love for you to do is sign up for the uh, newsletter. Uh, that's really the core of what I do. And you can check out the podcast. If you're into podcasts, I got YouTube, it's all there. Uh, check it out, but give, please get on the newsletter. Great. Thanks so much for coming on Aaron. Thank you. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store to access this offer. Visit rightresponseministries.com slash offer. We highly recommend pastor Joel's book. Am I truly saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support.